And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello, and thanks for joining us on this Friday, July 22nd, 2022, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian. Our digital editors, Amelia Brust, Daisy Thornton, and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive... A new and highly unusual internship program at a Virginia Naval Station concludes its first year. Plus, how agencies can be more agile in the rules-driven business of rulemaking. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, the Veterans Affairs Department has scrapped plans for its electronic health record launch until at least October. The VA Medical Center in Boise, Idaho, will not go live with the new Oracle Cerner system tomorrow as planned. VA also canceled go-lives at four other sites following problems documented by the VA Inspector General. In fact, VA officials say the EHR isn't ready to launch at all at the big complex facilities. For an update, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. Jory sounds like nothing correct is going on at all with this project. Tell us about Boise, Idaho. Yeah, this has been a situation where the bad news just keeps coming here. On this particular project, what we heard from the VA recently is that the Boise Go Live is not going to go ahead as originally planned. And what we heard from Terry Adiram, the executive director of the EHR Modernization Integration Office, she told the Senate VA committee that the agency made this last minute go, no go decision based on the state of the readiness of this EHR system in light of some pretty serious concerns from the inspector general's office. Here, Adiram outlines what all went into that decision making. Today, we made the decision that the system just wasn't in a place because of the latency, as well as other pieces that were not in place for us to be confident that we could have a successful deployment. And that's the change in the deployment strategy that I was able to bring to this particular um, program. Yes, in a clinical situation, latency can be dangerous, I suppose. And what have been some of the issues, latency and otherwise, that have just plagued this thing since they tried to go live a year ago? Well, up until this point, the concerns have been about training, about user friendliness of the system, getting clinicians to have a baseline familiarity with it, and And this was always going to be an issue no matter what. But what really crossed the threshold here is the release of a recent Inspector General's report that looked at the first go-live in the Mann Grand Staff VA Medical Center in Spokane, Washington. This report found nearly 150 instances of patient harm tied to the EHR. Basically, the root of this issue was an unknown cue where signals from doctors and clinicians for subsequent care wasn't getting to the pharmacy, wasn't getting to other aspects of the system, and this resulted in medication not being filled for some patients, for example. And this is really an area where the VA doesn't want to be in. This is a situation where where VA Secretary Dennis McDonough has said if this EHR rollout resulted in patient harm, that he would have to take a look at whether they could go forward on things. And that is still a very big question that we don't quite have answers to just yet. One other thing that we heard is from the VA's Chief Information Officer, Kurt Delbeni. He says that there's been 24 outages and 48 degradation events since that first go-live in Spokane. Here, he gives a little bit of an update on the resilience issue of that EHR. A lot of the problems have been where the system was designed to be resilient but didn't perform in a resilient way. So a piece failed, and it's supposed to fail over to another piece of capacity, and it didn't. 
And so we're pushing them to get those problems solved. Wow. So resiliency is an issue. Outages are an issue. Messages don't go through to fulfill prescriptions. And there's latency. Congress has also weighed in, right, Jory? Yeah. The Senate VA committee, they've been very concerned by the claims of VA patient harm as the result of this EHR go live. And the other thing they've been concerned about is just really the life cycle of this contract that the VA has signed with Oracle Cerner. This was supposed to be a 10-year contract worth $16 billion. Congress has gotten some estimates that as a result of these hiccups with the system, that the contract could be extended for some additional years and could be much higher than that original $16 billion sticker price. I guess I wish this was a surprise, but it's kind of an unfortunate not a surprise. And what about Oracle Cerner? I mean, Oracle acquired Cerner for $28 billion in cash. So now it became Oracle's problem. I imagine Larry Ellison hasn't flown out to VA yet, but what is the company doing? They are doing several things here just in light of these serious allegations. The committee heard from Mike Cecilia. He's an executive vice president for Oracle. And he says that since the acquisition of Cerner was completed about six weeks ago, Oracle has gone in and they have issued a a fix to a database bug that caused 13 of the EHR's 15 latest outages. Oracle is also moving the EHR to a modern cloud architecture, which should help with some of the performance and stability concerns that have been cropping up lately. So in other words, Oracle is really technically getting very involved in what was a Cerner business and changing the architecture and redoing the database. That's Oracle's basic expertise. Yeah, they are really throwing their full weight behind this and really adding some resources to this in terms of people who are there to troubleshoot each our go lives as they happen and make sure that people have some baseline level of trust in the system that it does what it's supposed to do. Yeah, definitely a code situation. And what about the DOD version of the same EHR? How's that going, do we know? And and is the compatibility between the two still ongoing? Well, DOD is certainly further ahead in terms of migrating to this interoperable EHR. There have been some IG concerns about the interoperability piece of things, but that's kind of the question that a lot of senators had is if it's the same EHR and DOD's so much further ahead in terms of the migration, what is it about VA that is at issue here? And what Adiram said is that DOD just had a lot more forward momentum that they were able to do the go-lives in waves, and what it's been like for the VA to date has been this really patchwork process where they have gone live at a handful of sites, but as we've seen, every upcoming go-live, there's this big question of whether it will really happen, whether it'll be postponed, and so that is the issue here. VA has been quick to point out that it was always going to be a heavier lift for the VA. DOD was migrating from three EHRs to one, and the VA is going from more than 100 instances of its legacy EHR to this new Oracle Cerner one. So a couple of issues there that VA is unique in that regard. Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. All right, thanks for being on top of this. Thanks, Tom. And be sure to check out Jory's story at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your shows. Hello, I'm WIPA CEO Shane Canfield, and thank you for joining us on another episode of Lessons in Leadership. I'm honored to be joined by Angie Bailey, founder and CEO of Ananda Life. Angie has a remarkable career in public service, 
beginning as a GS2 clerk typist with the Social Security Administration. And over the next 40 years, Angie steadily worked her way up through the government, ultimately becoming the Chief Human Capital Officer at the Department of Homeland Security. She's been recognized with presidential rank awards by two administrations for leadership, innovation, dedication, and commitment to the country. Angie, thank you for joining us. Thank you, Shane. What a pleasure to be here. Angie, you've made quite a name for yourself as a leader in the federal workforce. Who was the first person you remember looking up to as a leader and what about them inspired you? you know, I often think about this because you know, sometimes we think of the people that we look up to the most as being somebody that throughout our career has you know, been at the highest levels and all. But I, you know, I've got to go back to honestly, whenever I was 10 years old, And uh, I remember I really wanted to play Little League baseball on a boys team. I was the only girl. And interestingly, it was the women who would keep saying to me that, no, I couldn't play. And then one day, whenever I was there to sign up yet again, uh, there was this guy, his name was Delbert Beiser. And uh, I remember he had like red hair and he had a wad of tobacco in his mouth and greasy overhauls and everything. And he said, you know, I'll take her, I'll take her on my team. And, you know, just looking back on that, there's so many leadership lessons and things that I just really admire about him. And actually, I thought about throughout my entire career, he took a chance on somebody he didn't know. He um, put aside whatever conscious or unconscious biases that he might have had about having a girl on a team. He treated me the same, Uh, whether, you know, if I wasn't performing, I got benched just like the boys. I got no special treatment and, and, and he was just really honest with me and he just included me in everything. And so looking back on it, you know, really it was Delbert Beiser, our local mechanic in our little small village that was, I think, my inspiration for going on to, I hope, become the leader, um, you know, that, that I wanted to be. I'd say half of the guests on this podcast have had similar stories where they reach back to either childhood or young adulthood. And I, and I think as leaders, it's really incumbent upon us to keep that in mind, that, that what we say and do, admit, especially in the younger ages, really can have a lifelong impact. How would you describe your leadership style? And, and how has that developed over time? I would say that the one word that describes my leadership style is that I care. Um, I guess that's more than one word, but I care. Uh, I, I've always cared about the mission. I've always cared about the people. I've always cared, you know, about making sure that that they had what they needed or that they were developing the way, uh, you know, that they aspired to develop. And I tried to take this approach of not treating people the way I wanted to be treated, but instead treat people the way they wanted they want to be treated. And I think that that really kind of developed over my career. You know, I started out just like most leaders do where it's very results driven. It's all about the bottom line. You need to make sure that you get everything accomplished because, you know, that's what everybody's looking for, the goals, the metrics, et cetera. But I think as you mature and you go along, you start to, to your point, you draw back on those early childhood days or early adult young, you know, whenever you're a young adult and you say, you know, I think that there's a little bit more to this than just the bottom line. And so over time, I really began to, I I think, see a much bigger picture and the entire ecosystem, if you will, and how the people themselves fit into all of this. And that ultimately, at the end of the day, it was all about the people. And so I, you know, I think my my maturity allowed me to then shift and 
focus more on the people than than so much on the results and bottom line. You've been recognized with two presidential rank awards, two different administrations. You founded your own company. Tell us a little bit more about your background from the beginning and, and how did that lead you to where you are today? Well, you know, it's kind of interesting, like you said, that I started out as a GS2, a Social Security Administration. I mean, what I really wanted to be was a criminal prosecuting attorney. It's, that's That was absolutely my dream. I sometimes joke and say what I really wanted to be was a mafia don, but that wasn't going to work out. So, you know, had to be a criminal prosecuting attorney. But, you know, I had to get a job to pay for college. I, you know, it wasn't in the cards that I was going to be able to go to college without a job. So I applied at the Social Security Administration, or I'm sorry, at the unemployment office, and lo and behold, I got a job at Social Security. I didn't even know it was federal, to be honest. Uh, from there, I went to the Department of Defense, and I found this, this career field called labor and employee relations. And honestly, it was as close as I was going to get to being a criminal prosecuting attorney. I didn't go on to be a, a criminal prosecuting attorney, but I went on courtesy of the Department of Defense to get both my bachelor's and my master's in leadership, because the whole study of leadership, I just find incredibly fascinating. Um, you know, from hi historical to current, uh, current times, I just, it's just something that's just really fascinated me. And so I just, I would say I'm a lifelong learner of leadership. And then I would say some of the other things that got me maybe where I am today is I never really said no to anything. If people asked me to take on a new challenge, even if I wasn't sure I was going to be successful at it, I would say, you know what, not sure this is going to work out, but more than happy to give it a try. And it always worked out. But I think giving things a try and just not saying no to opportunities is what really led from one position to the next. I feel like I was always rewarded for just stepping in or stepping up and taking on the challenges that sometimes no one else wanted to do. Angie, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Shane. It's such a pleasure. I, I really appreciate you giving me this opportunity. Thank you. This has been the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm CEO of WEPA, Shane Canfield. Looking forward to talking to you next time. This episode is brought to you by Zelle. Whenever you're sending money through an app or online, it's important to do it safely. Here are a few helpful tips. First, always make sure you know and trust the person you are sending money to. Second, confirm you have entered their contact details correctly. And finally, if you don't trust the person or your recipient is rushing you to send money right away, think twice before sending money through an app or online. Grab a 30-day free trial of Live by Live Plus and you'll get unlimited skips, commercial-free music, and all of the podcasts and live streaming events you can handle. Visit livexlive.com slash podcast one to learn more and start your free trial.